Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another Fighting Network edition of Wednesday night as our sports conversation continues. As always, Roy Cummings is in Tampa, Florida. We'll chat about that in just a moment. Roger Hendler is in Atlanta, where a lot of things are going on. The Braves lost the game today. 
And, of course, Frank Cowell, our executive producer at the controls. And before we start the sports conversation, let's go right back to Frank for a dedication and get that out of the way first. Right, uh, Frank? Okay, thanks, Don. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, these programs are always brought to you every, each and every night for appreciation of the United States Armed Forces and the Minimum Police and Fire Services. And they, tonight we'd like to dedicate this program not only to those men and women who have put their lives on the line each and every night, but two of the most uh, uh, prolific uh, icons in, in sports history, Mr. Bill Russell and Mr. Vin Skelly. Both of them in their own had a perfect um, example of what you should do as a professional. Both of them have uh, did nothing but provide entertainment for ladies, for everybody, young, young and old, and for them and their family, the staff and the ownership of the station uh, do send out their deepest regrets uh, and to their families. Uh, We're going to chat a lot about Bill Russell in the third portion of our program this evening, and of course, Vince Scully, uh, we chatted about before we went on the air, the three of us. Roy Cummings, first of all, welcome, and before we get to uh, uh, what's happening on the sports scene? We'll just take a moment to talk about the Poet Laureate, maybe the greatest baseball announcer of all time, 94 years of age, passed away last night. Vince Scully uh, in a class by himself. Roy? Yeah, clearly. Um, I mean, there's there's never been anyone like him in sportscasting and broadcast, uh, not just baseball, but uh, sports broadcasting. There's just never been a storyteller of his, uh, of his nature, uh, a guy who could, uh, you know, who never overstated things, um, who just had a way of, uh, you know, kind of presenting the passion and, and the excitement that was happening on the field, but in a way that made you feel that, and, you know, at home, um, but at the same time, never overdoing it. I mean, he was just exceptional. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, memorials going on right now to him on Twitter, Facebook, uh, across the Internet, uh, I would encourage anyone, whether you heard him or not, uh, to listen to him. Uh, there was one where he's, you know, Madison Bumgarner is on the on the mound against the Dodgers in a game, and he's talking about how he, he, t- he tells this story while it's telling you, you know, you know, here's a, a fastball low on low and outside uh, ball one. You know, throwing that. You know, not, never forgetting what the real job is, but at the same time telling you the story about how Madison Bumgarner, you know, stumbles upon a rattlesnake uh, out in the in the desert one day, and he's with his wife, and and you know, he, he chops the thing up with you know whatever kind of weapon or tool that he had or whatever it was, and uh, it turns out that there's you know uh, a, a a very small little rabbit, a jackrabbit inside the the the, uh, the the snake, and and the and the, the family takes the the rabbit home and, and nurses it back to life, and you know several weeks later releases it to the wild. I mean, he's telling you these stories, and he found a way of making ball players seem like human beings, and and you know exceptional human beings, and and it wasn't all just about you know how good their fastball was or how good they could hit a curveball or how fast they could run and whether they could steal a base or not or throw out a guy, you know, trying to make it from first to third. Um, He found a way to humanize players 
in a way that made them feel like your next door neighbor. And uh, it's what he did best, best and, and better than anyone. And uh, on top of that, you know, he, he just he called the game as well as anyone did. And uh, the world is a much uh, worse place without him because he was the kindest man. That was the, one of the greatest things. He was just so kind to everyone. He was kind. Um, and he, he just – I'm not sure he had a mean bone in his body. I'm sure he had moments where he, he wasn't happy or things didn't go his way and he got frustrated and upset. But boy, he never let it show in public. And um, it's a measure of the man that, that's, uh, that, he's, that he, he's so remembered and so beloved across the entire baseball community. In fact, across the entire sports community. Let's not forget, he didn't just, just do baseball. You know, he had the Dwight Clark catch – uh, for the 49ers back in the day, calling football. He called golf. He called, um, I think he, I, I'm not sure he ever called hockey, but, uh, uh, you know, he's a bit of a skater. He beat Jackie Robinson in a, in a race uh, on speed skates one time. Uh, he could call anything. And um, he, was, uh, he was as American as the flag, and uh, we miss him. There's no doubt. We miss him. I've, I've been missing him. Uh, you know, I stay up, I, I, I've stayed up late many, many nights watching Dodgers games, even if I didn't care who they were playing, just to listen to Vince Scully. And uh, I, I miss that. I miss it a, le- a lot. Roger? Well, I go, uh, obviously, Roy, uh, a lot further than you and Warren Don's uh, era. And uh, used to listen to him. Uh, I think it was on WMGM at the time. That was the, the call letters in New York. You might remember that, Don with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and before he was Vince Scully, he was Vince Scully. And, uh, W-H-N, Roger, W-H-N. Yeah, W-H-N, 1050, the original, as it turns out, the original fan in New York. And, uh, Correct. But he was just uh, one of a kind, and I uh, relate the story. Uh, I was at the uh, Phillies game one night with a uh, group of <clears> – <throat> Excuse me, people, uh, sponsors from W uh, or from Nassau Broadcast. And Johnny Morris, who was uh, one of the owners and the main guy, uh, he was a big Dodgers fan. And he had been involved in Armed Forces Radio in Europe and uh, everything. And he always wanted to meet Vince Scully. So we went up to the vet press box before the game and Johnny, Johnny got to meet his hero in broadcasting. Vince Scully, and I'll never forget it. He was like a kid in a candy store, and Don knows Johnny, the late great Johnny Morris. He, uh, he, it was great. It was just great to see someone uh, that uh, was now getting to uh, meet his his hero, and not a childhood hero, just a hero. Period. Well, a lot of outstanding broadcasters came from Fordham University and are still continuing now. Michael Kay, of course, the lead voice for the New York Yankees. But I was fortunate enough, uh, well, I guess old enough to remember. I remember when he first graduated from Fordham. And when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers, Red Barber brought him in. Uh, he had had a, uh, an opportunity to do a game from the, from the roof of Fenway Park in Boston, a football game. And it just so happened that Red Barber did around the National uh, Football League and around college football. He did one of the first ones to do those shows. And Vince Scully was on the roof at Fenway Park, and uh, Red called him in to talk about the game at Boston College, and uh, liked the way he presented himself. It happened to be a game that 
was one of the most exciting games that particular day, so he got a lot of airtime. And then he came over and joined the uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And, of course, I go back to Connie Desmond before Vince Scully even started. Uh, Connie Desmond and Red Barber were the team with uh, the then Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, when he came in, and from the day he got there, uh, uh, began to began to become one of the greatest announcers in baseball history and stayed there for all those years until he was 90 years of age between Brooklyn and, of course, Los Angeles. He was one of the ones that decided he was a New Yorker, but he decided to go to Los Angeles with the Dodgers and not uh, – uh, Red Barber, of course, went to the Yankees, but uh, Vince Scully decided to go with the Dodgers, and he remained with the Dodgers until uh, his final days. But we say, uh, Poet Laureate really doesn't uh, doesn't cover what a great person he was, what a great personality he was, but more importantly, uh, his dedication to the game, to the people around the game. And every time we were in uh, Connie Mack Stadium or at the Vet or Citizens Bank Park, and you had to sit down in the uh, press room and have a chance to show, talk with Vince Scully, it was one of the great pleasures of, of all time. So... Uh, I have to agree with the with the two of you. Uh, uh, he was just in a class by himself. He'll never be duplicated. And uh, uh, the other thing was that he lasted such a long, long period of time. And if you went to Dodger Stadium, uh, you listened to Vince Scully in the ballpark. They had him on. They had him on the radio in the ballpark all the time. Because one of the things, the ironical things about the Dodgers were, most of the time they got the Chavez Ravine late. And they left in the seventh inning. So they had had Vince on before the game, during the game, and after the game. And uh, uh, some of the younger folks, I, I hope they took advantage of it. Uh, Roy talked about it. If you watched MLB, uh, when the Dodgers were on, Vince did the games. And when he did the games, he did games all by himself. He did not have a color analyst. He didn't have anything. The stories that Roy just uh, uh, mentioned uh, all the information that came during the course of the games on MLB or when you listen to to Red in, in Los Angeles or in, uh, before he, uh, uh, or after he left Brooklyn. Uh, so, Roy, you're exactly right. Had great stories with every every presentation of every game. And uh, I hope some of the younger folks had a little bit of a chance to hear him on MLB, uh, not like we did see, hearing every game. Roy? Yeah, no, you're right, and, and and you pointed out something that uh, you know I I kind of forgotten that that you're absolutely he did it by himself, which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, you're we're in the era of three and four man broadcast booths, where you know there's there's clearly in some cases too many guys talking, and here's Vin Scully uh, carrying uh, carrying the broadcast by himself for nine plus innings in some cases, uh, never missing a beat. Uh, always, get, you know, telling the stories of the players, and uh, and never, you know, always keeping you up to date as to what's happening in the game. Uh, just an exceptional, exceptional broadcaster. I mean, uh, this is how it's done. He he was he's the he's the model. If you, if you ever want to learn how to be a broadcaster, at least for baseball and really for anything else, you go listen to Vin Scully because, as you said, uh, and and he was able to analyze the game in a way that, that you know, it, it, he could be critical uh, with, with just the facts. 
you know, he could point out facts that, that would explain that, well, here's a, here's a pitcher who's not really performing well of late, you know, or here's a hitter who's, who's fallen on hard times. And, and it, those are words that he would use. You know, here's a, here's a, you know, this, here's a poor hitter who's just fallen on hard times. And, and you understand, you know, you, all of a sudden you realize that, you know, and then the next thing you know, if that hitter gets a hit, and he goes, well, <laughs> you know, or, or if he doesn't mention how, that the players hit on falling on hard times, if he gets to the hit, he'll say, well, this is how tough a situation this is for the pitcher because that's the first hit for this hitter in, you know, 18 at-bats, and, you know, he struck out 12 of those 18 times. And he just, again, uh, the analysis was uh, was unique. Uh, the storytelling was unique. And um, they're just, as you said, uh, Don, there'll never be another one like him. And uh, it's, unfortunate that, it's unfortunate that he's gone. Um, it's uh, from our world. It really is. Well, we grew up with some great broadcasters. Bob Prince had a style. Uh, was a tremendous broadcaster in Pittsburgh. You in Chicago, uh, you had a couple of really great broadcasters out there. Uh, but the one thing about uh, Vince, uh, uh, as, I, as I go back and think over the years, uh, the one thing about Scully was that uh, he would never, what we're looking at today, he would never pay attention to the ball was hit 97 miles an hour. Uh, and the, the ball was, uh, I mean, all that kind of stuff that they throw in now has nothing to do with the game. Nobody that's watching the game cares whether somebody, whether the ball went 430 feet or whether it was hit out at 97.5 or 112.5. He would never, 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 uh, weaken himself to, to broadcast a game like that. No, you're absolutely right, John. He could broadcast a game, uh, and someone who's not a fan of the game would learn something from it. I, there exactly. wasn't a broadcast that Vin Scully did that I didn't learn something new about the game or a player or, or just some aspect of the game. Uh, and, and to me, again, and I've said this before, you know, I, I talked about it before with, uh, to me, that's that's the measure of a broadcaster. Is can I if I listen to a game, um, you know, and, or an analyst. If I listen to a game, did I learn anything new from from watching that game? Whether it's about a player or the game itself or something like that, did I learn something? And every time that I listen to a game where Vince Scully's making the call, I learned something new. It was usually about a player, but uh, it, it was something that you just. You kind of kept in your memory bank, and you said, "Oh, hey, the next time I see that guy, it's like, hey, I remember Vince Scully telling the story about you know this guy, and and whatever it may have been, it may have been uh, about how he escaped from Cuba and made it to America. It may have been about how he, you know, killed a rattlesnake and then uh, brought back to life the you know the the, the little jackrabbit that had been swallowed up inside him, or it might have been something about how he you know he, he fought his way up from the minor leagues and, uh, and and became the player that he always dreamed of. You never knew, but." Uh, he just—he was just incredible. I—I I, I marveled at how he could, uh, you know, where did all the information come from? Clearly, he had uh, an ability to interview players that, uh, uh, that that some most broadcasters, I would say, don't have because, um, you know, he clearly he just had a rapport that he was able to get these kind of stories out of players, and uh, and, and again, that's uh, just another aspect of what made him so special. Well, we tip our hat to the greatest and. Uh, We'll jump, as we always do, from one sport to another. And uh, uh, let's stay in Tampa where you are, Roy, for just a moment because uh, a major story over the last couple of days of the Miami Dolphins being penalized, not only draft choices but money, uh, a team that, in my view, can't afford to lose players, draft choices, or anything. And uh, 
for a for a violation that took place before Tom Brady ever left the Patriots. I can't believe that it, this has turned out the way it is. Yeah, what a remarkable um, uh, you know set of circumstances we've learned about here in the NFL over the last few days. The NFL once again, um, it, it doesn't need any help giving itself a black eye, and uh, it's done it yet again here. Uh, not only with, uh, in my opinion. Um, you know the, uh, the the penalty for uh, for Deshaun Watson, but uh, the penalty uh, for Stephen Ross and the Dolphins for uh, tampering with uh, the goat Tom Brady and and Sean Payton, another goat perhaps, and uh, or certainly in the argu- in the conversation uh, in Sean Payton. And you know, guys, it takes two to tamper. I don't think the NFL looks very good for allowing Tom Brady and even Sean Payton to kind of skate through this uh, unscathed because. Let's face it. Um, a phone call might be uh, uh, might come from from the Dolphins, but somebody's got to answer it, and somebody's got to return that call for there to be tampering. And uh, it seems seems to me that um, the goat Tom Brady has been uh, tainted yet again uh, as a bit a bit of a cheater here, and uh, clearly looking out for himself. And I understand, you know, he he's clearly thinking about you know his uh, his post NFL career, but in 2019. Still a member of the Patriots, 2021, coming off a Super Bowl uh, visit. Uh, you know, my gosh, uh, this guy's uh, talking to the Dolphins about, you know, becoming a part of management, part of the executive team, playing for Sean Payton. Uh, I'm just I'm just astonished that, uh, look, we all know tampering goes on to some degree, but to this degree, uh, absolutely incredible. I think the NFL's got a lot of work to do to clean up its act. And uh, unfortunately, I doubt that it will happen. Roger, let's jump down to you. You stay in the National Football League for a minute because that's not the only whitewash in the National Football League this week. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I I can't understand. And, you know, I will say this. They're trying to put a lot of pressure on the commissioner to upgrade the uh, penalty uh, given out by the special committee uh, on the violations. Uh, I just can't believe that four, five, six, I, I can't believe what they did. Well, first of all, just to follow up on the uh, Miami situation, I think it is a disgrace that the uh, owner and the team has been penalized like that. Because, Roy, you're exactly right. It takes two to tango, okay? And and we don't know whether, you know, Tom Brady's agent was uh, got, got said, hey, listen, uh, we'd like to feel you out about, uh, you know, him coming there. I remember you bringing up about him going to Miami months ago, okay, you know, after the season. And I wonder, why would he want to go to Miami? And, and you explained it. I think uh, the uh, owner has been – I think it's a ridiculous uh, penalty. Number one, I think there ought to be a lawsuit to go against the commissioner uh, on this. I really do. I think it's ridiculous. The thing is about Deshaun Watson is also ridiculous, okay? If the league wanted to get a year suspension, well, then try to do it, okay? And if you have to go to court, go to court. But this judge, this was like a joke, okay? This is, uh, it's a fraud. That's all I can say, the whole thing. Well, on the Deshaun well, Watson yeah. thing, you know, I, I, to me, I don't think you could argue if, and we're not in a court of law, but if you were in a court of law, 
uh, and Deshaun Watson was facing charges, he'd be facing, in essence, 25 or 27 charges of sexual assault. Well, perhaps, since he ended up settling 26 times, well, maybe he should have uh, missed a game for every time that he was that he was uh, he sexually assaulted someone or, or was accused yeah. of. Him. I mean, if if the yeah. if the uh, if the argument is that he you know he violated the the NFL's code of conduct, well, he violated it at least twenty six times or twenty five times, whatever the number is. There's probably right. several out there that we don't even know about. So to me, he should be suspended for every violation. Um, so I'm with you on that 100. percent I I don't agree that. Stephen Ross should not be penalized for his actions in the in the Miami thing. And here's why. This wasn't just a one-off thing. This happened in 2019. It happened again in 2021. And that is just the, the situation that we know about. You have to believe that it, was pro- it probably happened more than that, that there's been more conversations that nobody's owning up to. And the other thing that they, they just kind of laughed off at the NFL was this supposed joke that, oh, I'll give you $100,000 for every game you lose. <laughs> oh, they're oh, just yeah. kidding. No, I don't think they were just kidding. They weren't just kidding. And uh, I think the NFL, again, has, has tried to basically, you know, sweep this under the rug so that, it's, uh, so that it doesn't look as bad as it, as it really is. And, uh, unfortunately, it's, um, it, 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 it just, again, it makes the whole league look worse than it really is. Well, the judges. Roger, one thing I'd like you to comment about it really puts the coaches in a bad position because uh, the Stavansky family, uh, you know, uh, we grew up with them in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, he's a great guy and he's a great young coach for the Cleveland Cleveland organization. But at the same time, he's put in a terrible spot. I mean, now he's got to be the one to step up and say, okay, from a club standpoint, from an organizational standpoint, we're going to follow this very closely. He's going to be monitored. He can't go to any massage parlors. He can't do this without being authorized to go there. Uh, the coach is really put in a terrible, terrible spot. And the lady that made the uh, uh, the arbitration commission, the lady that made the announcement was the, the judge. I mean, I just can't yeah. believe how they could come up with that penalty. And now the league wants to have the commissioner come in and and. Uh, Put him under probation for a year. I mean, it's all screwed up. Well, the, I'm going to say that the, uh, the I think her name is Robinson, right? The judge. I think, I think, I think she's that's a it. Former judge. Yeah, but she basically, the way I read that, everything I've seen, she is basically saying that the league didn't do a good job of its defense when they had the hearing. Now, and uh, wait, wait. The NFL is a multi-billion, billion, billion dollar, trillion dollar industry. Are you telling me they they don't have good enough uh, legal uh, beagles to be able to uh, present their case properly? That's what it sounded like to me. That's that's ridiculous. Roy, oh, I agree with you. It's one hundred percent. You know, they're, they're kind of blaming the league for not doing uh, you know a good job of kind of policing itself and. Uh, and it's like, well, no kidding. Um, yeah, and, and as, as, as uh, Roger said, uh, you know, you're talking about an, a $14 billion industry. Uh, last time anybody checked, and it's probably on its way to 15 or $16 billion, if not more. But yeah, they, they certainly have the ability uh, to hire the, the right lawyers to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, they, they fail consistently. Consistently they fail. And, um, again, I, I well, Roy, I, let me, let me interrupt Roy before we run out of time. 
do you think that the commissioner will now stand up? He's never done it. Do you think he's going to stand up now and say, well, we don't agree with the arbitrators with the suspension. We're going to put our suspension of our own into effect. you think he's going to do it? I think it's possible, but I think it would be a horrible mistake. You know, why else are you hiring these people on the outside to, to run independent, independent investigations of these situations if you're not going to accept their, uh, their ruling, um, you know, whether it's good or bad? And, and there's going to be people on every side of it no matter what it is, but some are going to think some are, you know, penalties are too harsh. Some are thinking some, some are you know, not harsh enough. But at the end of the day, uh, if that's what you hire these people to do, let them do their job and then accept the, the, the circumstances, whatever they may be. That's what, you, that's what they're hired for. And I think it's the best way to go. I mean, the league has to stay out of this stuff. And um, it's unfortunate, though, that uh, it's, you know, it's like a dam breaking for the NFL. There, there's so many issues that they're trying to, you know, you know put a cap on. that they, they put a cap on one and another one pops up. They put another cap on that, and another one pops up. And it's just – they just can't seem to get it straight. And the part of the argument is the owners are so powerful uh, that they don't want to lose key players, and they know that some of their best players are out there cheating. You know, we're talking about Deshaun Watson and Tom Brady here, and, this, and just this uh, argument alone. You know, you're talking about two of the best quarterbacks in the game. And uh, it's a quarterback-driven league. And, uh, you know, if these guys aren't playing by the rules or – acting, uh, you know, like uh, upstanding citizens the way they should, uh, you know, teams are going to end up looking awfully bad and losing, you know, plenty of money, plenty of money. And they don't want to do that. So, you know, they kind of they try to twist the rules a little bit to favor themselves. And when guys get caught, well, they, they usually uh, let them off with a bit of a slap on the wrist. And uh, in my opinion, that's exactly what's happened here yet again uh, in every case, uh, everybody that's involved in all of these situations. Right before the time runs out, and I know we're close for your dinner, but uh, uh, before I get back to Roger, uh, let's also jump over to one of your bailiwicks, and that's the National Hockey League. And look at the slush fund and what's happening in Canada now. Look what's happening there. We talk about the National Football League. We talk about now Canada's in the midst of a, a terrible mess. You'll have to tell me about it because I might not be aware of this. Oh, well, because of the uh, the slush fund that they created to cover up thirteen or fourteen million fourteen million dollars worth of sexual harassment charges. Oh yeah, yeah. And, I'm sorry, Hockey Canada. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That's a real bad issue as well. And you know, I guess um, once again, it's look when you've when you've got power and you've got money, you always think that you can hide behind the power and the money that you can somehow. Uh, you know, navigate your way around the problems that are created by throwing money and uh, at it and power at it and everybody keeping quiet. But, you know, sooner or later, the truth is going to come out. And, yes, you're right. Um, as bad as the NFL tends to look on a regular basis, right now Hockey Canada looks awful. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily the National Hockey League. It's Hockey Canada. But you've got an issue there and uh, it's, uh, that, that has to be addressed. And, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that the, people, the powers in Canada will make sure that it is addressed. Um, again, it's, it's a black eye. But you know what? This is an area where the NHL has, um, has consistently failed. Uh, you know, we've had several situations here of sexual abuse um, with minors, uh, with women, with, uh, with young boys. And, uh, and, and hockey has been involved in this on several occasions. And 
they can't seem to get this one right on the NHL side or the Hockey Canada side or even USA Hockey, perhaps. So um, there's there's got to be a lot of work done there. They've got to start uh, getting better at this stuff. Well, Roy, thank you very much. Your buddy Ira Coffin is standing by right now because we – Going to jump over and talk about the National Football League, talk about the Hall of Fame, but thank you very much as always. We'll get together next Wednesday. Sounds good to me. Have Ira, take it over, Roy. my man. Thank you, Roy. Hey, Roy. Hey, Roy. Thanks, Roger. Take care. Have a great week. Okay, Ira Coffin's all set to go, and uh, National Hockey League Hall of Fame, he uh, has been a presenter, has been a successful presenter on several occasions, certainly from uh, a Tampa Bay standpoint and also a contributor to ESPN, and uh, also joins the Mad Dog now and then to talk about the National Football League. Ira, first of all, welcome back to the program. And uh, so many things happening right now in the National Football League. You can pick any one of them and see what you think. No question about it. This is supposed to be uh, an off-season, uh, it's anything but. Uh, gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be in your company, um, and I think it's, it's only right – that uh, this has been a tough week because we've all followed sports a long time, and we know that the word legend, legend, that's thrown around all the time. This guy's a legend. This guy's a legend. Guys, we lost two of them. We lost one yesterday with Vince Scully, uh, who I think will go down as, as the greatest uh, announcer uh, probably in any sport. Um, and Sunday was a tough one. Bill Russell, some of our younger listeners might say Bill who? And if you say Bill who, you're not a basketball fan because he might be the greatest winner in professional sports history. Uh, That guy was a giant. So my hat's off to Bill Russell and and Vince Scully. We We lost two great ones this week. Well, Ira, as I said at the top, you're a presenter and have been successful in bringing in a couple of very, very big names into the National Hockey League or National Football League Hall of Fame at Ken. But uh, let me ask you this, uh, uh, because my arguments has, have been for years now, whether it's baseball or football or whatever, uh, and you just mentioned legends and how great players are. You know, how great are players? How, what, what, what constitutes, in your mind, a legitimate Hall of Famer? I mean, everybody's not a Hall of Famer. We, uh, I, I like to go by the eye test, and sometimes you can't find that on a statistic sheet. You, you have to have seen the guy play, and that's why, you know, I'm on the senior committee for the Hall of Fame, and there's 12 finalists, and we're going to vote on them in about two weeks on a Zoom right. call, and I, th- and I think three of them are going to get in, three out of 12. So... You know, you got guys like Ken Riley, Sterling Sharp, Chuck Howley, Bob Bob Kuchenberg. But you also got a guy named Cecil Isbell, and I think the guy played like in the 30s or the 40s. And that's tough for me to judge the guy because I didn't see him play. Now I'm old, but I'm not that old. And, (laughs) you know, there's really no films on this guy. So all you have is the impressions of maybe, maybe some people that saw him play. Uh, back in his time. Uh, but to me, it's it's the eye test. And if you saw Jerry Rice, and if you saw Barry Sanders, and you saw Lawrence Taylor, and you saw Reggie White, 
Uh, you saw Joe Green and you saw Mel Blunt and, and, and uh, guys of that caliber, Jim Brown, of course. Uh, then you know greatness when you see it. Um, and that's why I said those things about Bill Russell. Of course, his great rival was Will Chamberlain. And, you know, Chamberlain was the, the better athlete than Russell, um, the more dominant player. But you know what? At the end of the day, Russell's team's won, and, and that's another measure of, of a Hall of Famer. Roger? Well, I'll tell you what, Ira. Uh, I saw, like you did and Don did and Frank did, I saw Will Chamberlain go against Bill Russell many times, including, as I said earlier before we went on the air, and I've said it before, including the very first time that uh, Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell played against each other at Convention Hall in Philly. They had played a game in Boston, and, uh, and then they, uh, the, uh, this was the first game. I'll never forget it. I was at, uh, with my uh, buddies, and I just think uh, Will, uh, I, other people can disagree. I think he's the greatest player of all time. But Bill Russell was a, had a wonderful team around him, and uh, I, I, there was no doubt about it. And, and the coach, and it wasn't until they got Alex Hannum that the, uh, the 76ers with Will won that championship. And uh, I think, wasn't it the jump shot that could have uh, ended the Boston string, Don, Tom Mischeri? Missed the uh, sh- uh, shot or something like that. I think, I uh, think it was Frank Sel- Frank Selvey. I think. I thought it was. Is Frank that Selvey. who it was? Okay. Selvey yeah, was the one that scored a hundred points when he was at at Furman, I believe. I think that's where he went to college, Furman, and yeah, he scored a hundred. Right. Po- he scored a hundred yeah. points when he was at Furman, and uh, yeah, was a, an outstanding NBA player as well. But I think the final score of that game was one ten, one twelve, one ten, if I'm not mistaken. Um. You know, I'll say this, um, and, and I was a rabid uh, 76er fan in the 60s, and my brother was a Celtics fan. Um, most of the time, most of the time, Russell had the better teams. I, I, you got to yep. say that. But not always. And after Philly won it in 67, the next year, the Sixers were up three games to one and, and lost the final three games to Russell. And... Let's not forget that Russell also beat uh, Chamberlain, Jerry West, and Elgin Baylor with a guys like Don Nelson and Bailey Howell and Larry Siegfried. He had Havelcheck, but um, he didn't always. But have Ira, don't team, forget, but, don't forget, Ira, yeah. that uh, Ben Bredikoff was the coach of that team, and Will he quit was. on him the last eight minutes of the game. He wouldn't come back; that he had a sore knee, and Bill Russell. And, and, Bill Russell for years said, you know, even though they got to be friends later on, Bill Russell said for years, if you have a broken leg and there's five minutes to go in a championship game, you keep playing. He never bought the fact that Wilt had a bad knee, couldn't play those last six or seven minutes. You're right. Russell did say that. First of all, Russell knew that he was going to retire and he didn't have to play Chamberlain anymore. That's number one. Uh, And number two, number two, and it's very interesting. Um, those guys were very close friends off the court. And right. Russell used to eat at Chamberlain's house in Philly and this and that. When Russell made those remarks, I don't know if it was right after the game or shortly after that game, game seven, 
him and Wilt, Wilt didn't speak to him for 20 years. 20 years. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't speak Amazing. to him. And, he may, and Russell finally apologized. He knew he crossed the line, and you don't question somebody's injury. You don't do that. Just yeah, think what Van Bredekoff questioned it, too. No, Van Bredekoff said we're playing better without you. So he wouldn't put him back in. <laughs> Go ahead, Roger. No, I was just going to say, when you look at today's players, uh, I just think, I mean, if Wilt was alive, and just think what Bill Russell must have thought about some of these jerks that are playing, like Ben Simmons getting paid, yeah. what, $53 million and not playing one game. I mean, uh, and, you know, he's not alone. I mean, there's uh, other guys. You know, I mean, they're just – lackadaisical, they don't care, it's all, give me the money, that's all I care about. I'll play under my terms. You're right, and then they got something called load management, where the guy takes uh, every uh, eighth game off, and yeah. you go you go look at Chamberlain and Russell and Kareem, they they, they never missed a game. They didn't miss a no. game. No. You're exactly plus right. Plus, in fact, Wilt never fouled out of a game. Never fouled never out fouled of a game. Out. Yeah, college, college, or well, he got thrown out once when he was a kid. He got two technicals when he was a Kansas, got taken out of the game. But he never actually fouled out of a game in, in, in Kansas or uh, in an in a NBA. So, uh, but let's get well, back to your Bailey work, guy. Let's get back to to the Hall of Fame because you know you said uh, two weeks from now we're going to know a lot more than we know right now. You think there right. are three uh, not sure things, but. Uh, certainly ones you're looking at. What, give us your uh, impression of the three you think are really at the top of the line and go from there. All right. Uh, there, there's two guys on the Bengals. Now, the Bengals have been playing since 1968. They, they've only got one Hall of Famer. It's Anthony Munoz, who, right. who was fantastic. Uh, I mean, that's a long time. It's over, uh, you know, a half century. They've got one Hall of Famer. So they've got two candidates out of the final 12. Ken Anderson, quarterback. He won four passing titles. He led them to the Super Bowl against the uh, 49ers. That was the 49ers' first Super Bowl with Bill Walsh. And um, he was extremely accurate. One year he completed 70% uh, back in a time when 55% was considered very good. Totally different game. The other Bengal Mm -hmm. is Ken Riley. Now, Ken Riley, uh, he's a local guy. He passed away, you know, from Lakeland. And Ken Riley has 65 interceptions. Um, it is number it is number five all time, all time. And he's having a lot of trouble getting across the finish line. Uh, one of the reasons is that he played with a guy named Lamar Parrish as the other corner. And Lamar Parrish made five or six Pro Bowls, and and, and Riley didn't. Um, but if you look a little closer, you see Parrish made it a few times as a as a as a punt and kick returner. So that doesn't count. But to me, sixty five is too huge a number to ignore. So Ken Riley might have his day uh, on August sixteenth when when we meet on a Zoom call. Here's some other names for you guys to to consider: Chuck Howley. Chuck Howley mm-hmm. was a great, great linebacker for the Cowboys, doomsday defense. He made first-team All-Pro five or six times. Not the Pro Bowl, first-team All-Pro. That's much more mm-hmm. impressive. 
Um, then you got a guy that I'm going to be making the speech for. All, all 12 of us that are on the senior committee, we, we've all been assigned one player to make a speech for. And I'm very proud to make the case for a guy that he, he was a finalist for eight straight years, and then about 12 years ago he disappeared. He absolutely disappeared from the whole selection committee. He passed away, unfortunately, but that's Bob Kuchenberg. And for anybody, who says, yeah, for anybody who says, well, the Dolphins, they've already got two offensive linemen uh, from the early 70s on that team, and Larry Little and, and Jim Langer was the center. Kuchenberg was the left guard. I don't like those arguments either. Uh, you judge a guy on his own merits. Kuchenberg was a master technician. Tough as nails. And his signature game was Super Bowl eight against the Vikings. He played left guard, and the right defensive tackle was the great Allen Page. Allen Page. He made Allen Page disappear. The Vikings won the game easy. Bob Notre Green Dame's finest. Jeff- Notre Dame's finest, Allen right. Page. Uh, yeah, and Coach Allen went Page. to Notre Dame. They were teammates on Notre Dame. You're right. Yeah. And Bob Greasy threw seven passes all game, seven. And the mm. Dolphins won easily. Kuchenberg played with a frack forearm. They had to drill the bone marrow out and put a cast on. And he manhandled Page to the point where Page, at the end, by the end of the game, got two personal fouls because he was so frustrated that Kuchenberg was dominating him. The guy was a great player. Um, and let's get him in there. Shula said he was uh, as responsible as any player uh, he's ever coached. And, you know, Shula coached Johnny United. Um, I don't care if he's the third interior offensive lineman for the Dolphins. Kuchenberg deserves the bust, gentlemen. Well, you're going to be the one presenting. So, uh, Roger, I'll let you get the last question in for Ira. Well, I had a couple. Of, uh, I agree with you, uh, Ira, 100% on uh, Bob Kuchenberg. I did want to ask you, uh, who uh, has replaced David uh, Baker uh, heading up the uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame? David Baker has been replaced by a guy named Jim Porter, P-O-R-T-E-R. And you say, well, who's Jim Porter? Jim Porter was the publisher of the Canton paper, which is called the it's called the repository. That's a terrible name for a paper, but it, yeah, it's right. the Canton repository. And he kind of ran it for the last ten years. So of course everybody on the Hall of Fame board knew Jim Porter because it's the biggest story in town, having the Hall of Fame right down the road. And um, Jim Porter's done a great job because a lot of us senior um, presenters. Um, the first time we ever talked to Jim Porter, he said, what's on your mind, guys? And three or four or five of us said, you've you got to get more than one senior in every year. There's, there's too many seniors that have been overlooked. Too many. Um, mm-hmm. You've got guys, also, guys like Randy Gratishar, um, Everson Walls, Joe Klecko. I mean, there's a lot of good names on that list. Sterling Sharp. Um, and your third choice, you your third choice today you just talked about, who you don't have yeah, any film on and you don't really have too much information on, he's one of the ones so, you're talking about. Yeah, we call it the abyss. 
we call it the abyss because uh, if it's more than 25 years after your final game, you, you go into the senior pool and you're not considered mm-hmm. a modern-day candidate. And once you go in that senior pool, uh, I call it the abyss um, because it's hard to get out. It's really hard to get out when they only had one guy coming out a year. Look how long Jer- Jim, Jerry Kramer waited. Look how long Kramer mm-hmm. waited. And so now we're going to have three every year for about the next three or four years. That, that'll help clean it up a little bit. So I'm very impressed with Jim Porter. Good, good. Yeah, because I know David Baker did a fantastic job of development with all the uh, hotels and, and all the ancillary uh, activities that's going on there. He did. Baker did a good job. Byron, I, I hope that uh, I hope after a couple of weeks when uh, your presentation has been uh, presented and uh, they're in the throes of making decisions which way they're going to go for the Hall of Fame, I hope, as always, you'll rejoin us and uh, give us some of your thoughts on the presenters that uh, got in and whether your candidate got in or whether he didn't and some of the other things that happened during the meeting. It'll be a pleasure. And don't forget, guys, in January when we have the big meeting, for the modern-day guys that everybody knows their names. Um, and Darrell Revis is going to be a first-time eligible. Joe Thomas, remember that great tackle on a lot of bad Cleveland teams. He's going to be Absolutely. a first-year eligible. And, of course, uh, I am making the pitch for Rondé Barber. It'll be year three for Rondé Barber's nice. third speech. Um, and I'm used to this. I mean, it took me eight years to get John Lynch in. But yeah, it happened. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's not your time, and sometimes it's the guys you're going against. But Rondé Barber uh, has one hell of a case for uh, for getting a bust in Kent. Amen. Well, Iris, thank you as always. And look, uh, I know Frank will get in touch with you in a couple of weeks, and uh, we can talk about it. And I agree with you. Rondé Barber was uh, pretty much in a class by himself down here in Florida. It would have been a pleasure, guys. I'll talk to you in a yeah. couple of weeks. Ira, it's always Thanks, an Ira. honor to talk to you. I love you. Uh, you're great. I really appreciate you coming on with us. My pleasure, guys. Thanks. Take care. Have Take a great care. Week. Thank you very Take much. Care. Continued good work with ESPN and also uh, with the dog. All right, Mike Schulte standing by now, and uh, we talked to Mike a few weeks ago, really in the early throws of the Outback Bowl being changed to a new uh, heading. And, uh, Mike, we're getting closer to the football season. The pros are already in camp. Uh, you're getting ready, I'm sure, for the Tampa Bowl to get going again. And give us a uh, a reminder on what the actual host name is now. Yeah, well, first of all, it's a, a tough tough act to follow uh, when you're following Ira Kaufman. Uh, I just got to say he's one of the best in the business. Amen. But, um, no question. Yeah, but. But, uh, yeah, as, as you alluded to, um, we have a new title sponsor as of uh, uh, we announced it on June 9th. Uh, ReliaQuest uh, is our new title sponsor, and we are the ReliaQuest Bowl. Uh, ReliaQuest is a, um, a very worldwide, um, very well, uh, well-known in, the, in its field, uh, cybersecurity-type uh, fir- uh, uh, firm based in Tampa Bay. Um, it's uh, been around actually since I think uh, 2007, so about 15 years. Uh, but it's uh, uh, just a, a great group of people. Uh, it's uh, exploded in its growth, especially in the recent years. 
when uh, cybersecurity has become uh, such a critically important element um, for all businesses, and uh, and uh, they they provide uh, a number of different solutions um, uh, from a from uh, you know software and and, and uh, actual uh, employee support and so forth uh, for cybersecurity for major uh, companies and industries around the world and have offices around the world. And, uh, and as I mentioned, they're based right here in Tampa, which is nice. So it's it's going to be a, a great uh, partnership, and we're absolutely thrilled uh, with having them uh, as as the title sponsor of the bowl game. I was just going to say the same thing. You had such a great relationship for so many years with Outback. In fact, I think they were one of the longest sponsors of any of the bowl games anywhere in the country. And you had such a great relationship. And I know that uh, with the new one, uh, you're looking forward to the same type of uh, of operation, and I uh, I just wish you the best of success. I hope that uh, I know there's going to be some changes in how the teams are going to be selected. You're going to be working pretty hard for the next uh, uh, four or five months, getting squared away to find out what teams are going to come in and how it's going to go about, and and uh, give us a give us a thumbnail sketch of what the. I know it's not this year, yeah. but. Yeah, well, it, it really, I mean, it, nothing really has changed uh, with uh, with how we do things or you know, our conference relationships or uh, our TV network or, you know, nothing else has really changed. It's just the, the branding of the game, uh, you know, our logo and, and of course, our name. Uh, everything else is still on time in the past. So we have our full schedule of events, activities for the teams and the fans. Um, our conference relationships are the same, with primarily with the Big Ten and the Southeastern Conference. Now, what – what what is um, a part of our deal, which actually started a couple of years ago, but hasn't kicked in, uh, been in a situation to kick in yet, is that we do have uh, an opportunity potentially um, uh, that if we that if the Orange Bowl ends up um, uh, selecting a Big Ten team this year as one of their teams, then we would actually take an ACC team, which includes Notre Dame in that loop in that group, uh, so we could have like a Clemson or, or Florida State or 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 uh, uh, Miami or or uh, Notre Dame even or or any of those other teams uh playing an SEC team in our game uh but it, you know the first prior first aspect really is the Big 10 and the SEC and uh, that only that that caveat only kicks in if uh a Big 10 team ends up going to the Orange Bowl in their second spot so uh but that is a new uh, twist to our uh, our conference um uh, relationships and so forth uh, and like I said it's been in place for a couple years but it hasn't really played out uh, to to actually kick in um, in the, the last couple of years but it, it is something that could happen this year so a lot of a lot of great uh, opportunities regardless um, you know with with the you know three great conferences really uh, to uh, to choose from some teams from and we're very excited about it Roger, Mike, uh, I, I want to go in a little different direction. Uh, my career, I, I was in face, <clears throat> excuse me, in brand, in brand with a company, but it was, you know, a lot of it brand marketing. And my question is, is it a, a challenge uh, to go from having a well-known brand uh, by the public, okay? It's a restaurant, mm-hmm. people go in there, to a cybersecurity company and a, and a brand that really the common fan probably uh, wouldn't even know anything about. 
Uh, what are the challenges yeah. that you face with yeah, that? Yeah, well, 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 you know, it, you know, we're just getting started with it. But I, I, I think what's what what's attractive to to sponsoring the bowl game, um, you know, for ReliQuest most likely is is the fact that they can broaden uh, their universe uh, of awareness. Um, you know, they uh, you're, you're right; they're not a consumer facing company. From a standpoint of it's not something that you or I are going to buy for our personal computer, right? But right, right. Um, but at the same but at the same time, the broader exposure that they're going to receive, um, getting into uh, the you know the college football realm, uh, you know, uh, is in the eyeballs that are on that. Um, you know, there's a, an awful lot of uh, well, let's just say ten, tens of thousands of businesses. Uh, who have individuals who are fans of college football who are going to be uh, seeing uh, this name and their, their brand uh, around the bowl game and, 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 and the discussion of college bowl games in, in general. Um, and so by virtue of that, they're going to reach an awful lot of people that make decisions, either own companies, run companies, or make decisions on cybersecurity for companies. And so from that perspective, um, you know, it, yeah, it's different than than, than a sponsor like uh, um, uh, like VRBO or or a uh, a restaurant or a um, some other product or service that you you know Goodyear tires or whatever. But it is uh, but it is something where the you know them expanding out their their uh, universe, like I said, of of uh, of people that the, they can make their brand aware to um, is is going to be I think uh, a really positive experience for them. You know, it, even with our, our previous sponsor, I mean, you know, they weren't that big when they first started with us. And part of why, why they wanted to be a part of us is that they were they had plans to expand across the country and, and around the world, and that's what they did. And, and the awareness uh, of the of having any sponsor's brand as you are expanding and going into new markets uh, geographically um, or even new segments of markets um, is a positive thing. And so I think you're – you're seeing that with a lot of different title sponsors, not only of bowl games but other uh, of uh, uh, different types of, uh, uh, of venues. Uh, the, I think the the Pittsburgh Steelers Stadium, Heinz Field, uh, was just renamed uh, to yeah. uh, I think it's called Accenture. I think is how you pronounce it. It's a, mm-hmm. a, a fintech company, a financial tech mm-hmm. company uh, that deals in a lot of different areas um, and. Um, and so, you know, and there's others too. So, so you're getting more and more into um, other types of, of industries, if you will, or, or spaces uh, that maybe didn't traditionally sponsor venues or teams or, or bowl games and events and things like that. Because people, and as face it, you know, it's the same with the TV situation, you know, live sporting events uh, and, and events that are, uh, that are, televised uh, nationally internationally uh, live sporting events you know those are some of the most attractive advertising spaces that exist right now i mean you see that in adver- uh, in tv advertising you know the, the uh, you know the advertise the, the viewership that that live sports gets in this day and age where you have such streaming devices and all the, almost all the shows you watch are streamed and um, and consumed by not you know obviously you know even if they're still on your TV they're through a streaming service or 
or they're or they're, even if they're broadcast, they're DVR'd and and saved later so that we don't have to watch the commercials, right? Um, it, yeah. It's you know, but live sports isn't like that, and so live sports. Mm-hmm. That's why you've seen, I think, the the numbers, the, the re, almost ridiculous numbers, in regards to um, um, fees that the networks are paying for events and teams and 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 so forth, uh, going through the roof because it's the most attractive uh, way to reach consumers, and so. I think this is uh, yet, you know, like I said, going to be a really positive experience for ReliQuest to really get their name out uh, to a very broad audience that they haven't really well, maybe reached before. Well, Roger, I, you I totally agree. Yeah, I do, because I totally agree, uh, because I was with uh, Mobile Oil for most of my career until the merger, and then, you know, we were sold but still had the brand. But I, I was at the 89 Cotton Bowl the first year we uh, sponsored it. And I uh, remember exactly what Alan Murray, who was the CEO, what he also mentioned in uh, the statement about acquiring it was t- the recruiting factor for em- of employees, you know, to get yeah. uh, people that are interested and uh, are d- taking that more in college, uh, the uh, cybersecurity uh, curriculum. And I think that that's a, uh, another big factor. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, you're right on on board there. In fact, you know, from my understanding, and and I don't work for ReliQuest, of course, but you know, to my knowledge, uh, you know, of, of recent um, months at least, you know, they're hiring dozens of people every day um, to mm-hmm. this company. It's I think they they have probably about a thousand employees right now. They're they're increasing that number. Uh, I know that they're in the process of building out um, office space in one of the new skyscrapers in downtown Tampa. Uh, I think they're going to take 160,000 square feet there. Um, they're adding employees every day. Um, uh, ironically, it was just it was funny because we, we learned uh, shortly after we announced the, 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 uh, the sponsorship that one of our um, uh, recent interns is that actually was just hired you know, by them. Uh, they are in that mode where they're trying to get a lot of really good young people uh, to go into that field, and you're right. I mean, that's it's a great recruiting tool, um, you know, from that perspective, and it's and it's going to be a really neat experience uh, for their current employees as well. Uh, I, I've I've heard more more than once that uh, that how excited that their employees are that they have now even uh, that you know they're they're in this space and and uh, how much they're going to have, you know, fun with, with that as well. So it's, you know, college football. I mean, it, you know, so many, you know, so many people love college football and uh, they're no exception, obviously. So it's going to be good all the way around, I think, for them. Absolutely. Mike Schulte, of course, talking to us in this segment of the program. And, and Mike, uh, your station there at Tampa, of course, where uh, the bowl takes place. It's uh, it's some hard. of your thoughts on uh, the college football it's teams okay. in the area, Florida State, uh, you University of uh, South Florida. Uh, any feelings for uh, as they get ready to really accentuate camp? Uh, what, what do you think about this, the, the teams in your area? Well, you know, I haven't really had a chance to really uh, uh, learn too much about them uh, this year yet. And I, I think, you know, college football is going through a lot of a lot of things yeah. right now. Um, and, uh yeah. You know, one of the courses we and we as we've talked about is the portal. um, You know, with with players transferring a lot, so it's it's really it's really been interesting. You know, you saw it I think a lot last year, um, and there was a combination of things last year between 
the transfer portal um, in general, and then the fact that, you know, with the COVID year, the NCAA gave all the athletes an additional year of eligibility. So you had a lot of guys last year, um, and maybe even some some of them carrying over this year, um, who got that extra year of eligibility who, who would have been gone no. already, but they decided to come back for one more year of eligibility. So, so it's been a little bit – it's a little harder, it seems like, now to sort of take a team – uh, based on okay, here's what they had last year, no. and just assume that they're no. going to have the same no. team coming back this year, along with a few, um, you know, a few new recruits, because so many kids are transferring in and out. Um, and I think a good example of that, I think, is uh, you know, for instance, Oklahoma. You know, they had, of course, the, their coach went out to USC, and I think a couple of their key players went went with them to USC, and then one of their players, I think. Uh, Rattler, you know, he, he went to, I think, South Carolina. You know, so guys are moving around a, a lot. It's almost like a free agency kind of a situation, a little bit more so than, than you ever had in the past. And so, you know, when you have that situation where you have guys coming and going a lot, um, you know, it's it's harder from year, one year to the next, you know, to sort of predict what they're going to have, you know, because uh, the team can change their their – their face, you know, uh, pretty quickly now. Um, we, we saw that last year with Arkansas, who played in our game. You know, they made huge strides from the year before, in part because they had a handful of guys that came in from other uh, Division ones, uh, you know, major Division one programs um, that were able to come in and play right away and, and maybe tip the scales, you know, more so than if they were just relying – on who they had recruited, you know, uh, the previous years out of, out of, out of high school and that kind of thing. So, so I think because of that, I think you're going to be in a situation with a lot of teams where you might see, you're going to see more surprises, I guess is my point, um, where you might have a team that, you know, didn't do as well last year, but makes a significant um, jump this year. Uh, if they were in, in a situation to get some really key transfers and vice versa, you might have some teams that you thought were going to, you know, continue being, you know, you know, where, where they left off last year. And maybe they lost a couple of key guys that you didn't expect them to lose because they weren't seniors and, and they, and they decided to go play somewhere else. So, so it, it's, uh, I, I think we're going to have to sort of wait for the first few weeks of the season to really get a better feel as to, you know, how these teams are, are doing trending upward or downward. Yeah, the whole game, the whole game is changing now with the conference teams moving from one. I mean, two California teams going into the Big Ten. I mean, it's unbelievable. But Mike, thank you very, very much as always for joining us this segment. Look forward to uh, down the road next few weeks. Why we'll get together again as you look forward to what's going to happen as the season opens up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the best thing, right? I mean, we got college football about a month away. And uh, just couldn't be more excited about that. That's uh, I, I think it's going to be a terrific year, um, and uh, I just can't wait for it to start. Great with you, thank you so much. And I'll tell you, best of luck with uh, uh, the new the branding uh, of the bowl. And I I think it'll with you folks, it'll be nothing but a, a continue to be a great success. Well, it's, gonna, it's been a lot of fun uh, working with them so far, and I, I think you know we've, we've got a great, great partner that we're going to be able to continue doing all the good things that we've been doing um, in the past. So it's uh, we're, we're thrilled about it. Well, you know, we switch gears right now when we move down to the Baltimore, Washington area. Thanks, Mike, Mike. Sims, Sims is ready to join us, and uh, 
Mike, before we talk about your favorite sport, hockey, and what or soccer, and what's going on on the soccer front, uh, we want to touch a little bit because uh, you're a big NBA fan, have been for a long time, and we talked on the first segment of the show about Vince Scully passing away uh, yesterday, and uh, I know you'd like to touch a little bit on uh, Bill Russell and what he meant to the game of basketball, what he meant to the NBA, what he meant to the University of San Francisco, and uh, what he meant to the fans of the area. Yeah, well, uh, he passed, uh, of course, I am with, you know, millions on top of millions of people posted their tributes, and Frank asked me if I'd be willing to uh, talk about Bill Russell on the show, and I was initially a little bit um, surprised because I'm the baby of the bunch. Um, you know, I'm the one who got to see him play live. Uh, by the time I watched my first NBA basketball game that I can remember, Bill had already been retired for 20 years. For me, oh, I thought when Frank, I thought when Frank talked about it at the top of the show, I thought you were uh, a devotee of uh, Bill Russell and his oh, play, not only, no, not only in college but in the pros. I am, and um, I was honored because I am the one who hasn't seen him. You know, for me, he's always been a kind of – can't study sports history, watch as much NBA and as much sports as I am, and not appreciate him. And then when I, as you study Bill, you can't, you can't appreciate him as a player without appreciating him as a man. You know, he – Grew up, uh, he, born in uh, Louisiana, moved to West Oakland. He went. He was classmates with Frank Robinson uh, before going to San Francisco. He leads San Francisco to two, uh, their only two NCAA championships, and he'll later go back and help the University of San Francisco organize the uh, West Coast Athletic Conference, which they're still a member of. Um, leads the Olympic team, the gold, a gold medal before joining the Celtics, and we all know what he did with the Celtics. Uh, you know, the man on the court revolutionized the way the game was played. Before Bill Russell, nobody thought to jump for a rebound. It was actually considered to be really bad form, but uh, Red Arback saw him as the missing piece that could put the Celtics over the top and engineered it with the St. Louis Hawks, who felt like they already had a rebounder and didn't need him. Uh, and he was well, – Yeah. And they brought him in, and, you know, from there he wins 11 championships, eight in a row. Uh, as a coach, Red Arback never won a championship without Bill Russell. Um, Bob Cousy, who's the lone surviving member of that Celtics dynasty uh, at 93, he never won a championship without Bill Russell. Uh, That's right. But, you know, in true, I guess you could say, like Brady-esque form, Bill did manage to win two without them as a player coach. Um, and it, in an era where most people thought that centers were, you know, supposed to be offensive, uh, more of an offensive than a defensive threat, Bill never averaged more than 19 points in a single season. Um, but, you know, he took home five MVPs, um, all-NBA honors, uh, never won Rookie of the Year. And the first year that he won MVP, he actually 
was a second-team All-NBA player. So the players thought that he was the most valuable player in the league. They felt like the Celtics couldn't be what the Celtics were without Bill Russell. But the writers thought that he wasn't the best center in the league. Uh, you can chew on that for a little bit. Uh, the we got we got some people talking in the background here as you're uh, as you're speaking, Mike. But let me go to Roger because uh, Roger and I sort of we sort of grew up with Bill Russell all the way through. And Roger, go to it. Well, I, I'll say I agree, uh, Mike. Having seen many battles uh, in the, uh, the the Warriors. Hold on a second. Is that a dog? Is that a dog? You hear that dog barking or whatever? Yeah. No, there's none. Of, there's nothing coming through from the uh, from from our sound soundboard. So I don't know where it's coming from. Yeah, from Blog Talk Radio, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, but, okay. But go ahead, Roger. Uh, the, Mike, I, what I was going to say is that uh, I saw many a battle of uh, Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain with the Philadelphia Warriors before they moved to uh, San Francisco. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, the Syracuse Nats, uh, they moved to Philadelphia and became the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. And then that was another era. And uh, I will tell you uh, that uh, when the, the Celtics' uh, reign was over, uh, I, I was uh, working in New Hampshire. I went to see a Celtics game at the Old Garden, and Havlicek was uh, uh, really good, you know, like the only one that was left at that time. I mean, there were a couple of other ones. And the fans were booing the Celtics. And I, I said to the guy next to me, you're nuts. And with all the championships they won, now they're in a little bit of a decline. And, and you're booing them? you got to be kidding me. You know? So, uh, you know, you're exactly right. That was a, a, a dynasty and it was just uh, amazing. But I wanted to talk to you about the really big deal that was made yesterday by the Washington Nationals. And I got your uh, email and, and your message and everything. And, so, hey, let's talk about that. That was a big deal. Yeah, you – I often wonder if people – outside of the D.C., the I-95 corridor, realize quite how good Juan Soto is. Um, he's only 23. You know, he's got a lifetime 291 batting average. Um, it, he is, still has, for his career, 50 more walks than strikeouts for his career. And it, he's just such a good hitter. And a guy who last year won a gold glove, so he's just, he's an amazing player. And I've heard, and as the pundits were talking to, and I was talking to some fans who reside outside of this area, and they're like, "Well, you know, he's not Griffey or anything like that." And, you know, no, he doesn't have the power numbers that Griffey did early in his career. You know, his best season was um, two hundred twenty-nine home runs. And just a shade over 100 RBIs. He's, he's a 3,100 guy, but he's just such an amazing hitter. And the list of players who have made multiple all-star teams and been traded before they return 23 is Juan Soto. These guys mm. just don't come on the market. So 
seeing him get dealt was was one of the bigger trades that we're going to see. Uh, you hear guys on ESPN like Tim Kirchner say, like, this is the biggest move, player move that we've seen at this point, maybe since, you know, Ruth got traded. Uh, that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but you don't... Well, that's the comparison that we've, all the writers are making right now. Yeah. The biggest comparison yeah. is Ben yeah. Ruth being traded from the Red Sox in 1920. That's what they said on MLB, players. too. Same thing. Absolutely. Yeah, Everybody's saying players that. players with Juan Soto's comps and his pedigree and his numbers at his age being traded. And so it was a big deal to see him be traded and you know uniformly throughout Washington people are upset about it nobody wanted to see him move because this was you know this was the team this was the team this year the Nats are Juan Soto and eight other guys that they found sitting outside of a 7-Eleven the haul that they got back you know we will hear it referred to as Herschel Walker-esque it's harder to quantify it when you're dealing with major league baseball trades than NFL trades or any or NBA trades, because they're not picks. These are already players. They're prospects. They have names. They have stats. We can look them up. Um, and, you know, you're bringing back potential. And the question for the Mats organization was, at this point, did you want to give up on one all-time potential Hall of Famer, a superstar in his own right right now, who's coming into his prime, and bring back what you think might form the core of the team. And I told you, Roger and um, Tommy or Frank and um, Don, you know they got back a pretty good haul. There aren't many teams in Major League Baseball that have given them what they did. Uh, Hassel, the outfielder that they got, is a really good swing. He was in the Futures game. Uh, a lot of people like him. They think he's going to be a good corner outfielder. He's a pretty solid hitter. The kid, James Wood, is an absolute mammoth human being at, you know, 19, 20 years old, uh, six foot seven, 240-plus pounds, just a butt with surprising and athleticism, the field for an outfielder that size. He's also like Mike. Let me let me interrupt you for just a second, and I agree with ninety percent of what you're saying. The only thing is, as has been written in all the papers and talked on all the TV and radio shows, making the comparison between 1920 and Babe Ruth and now, they're looking at that trade from the backside. What Babe Ruth did. They're looking mm-hmm. at this guy way, way, way before he's really – I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't have all the tools, they say. I'm not saying he's not going to be a great player. But I'm not going to tell you that right now, you know, that uh, he's, he's going to be equivalent to the Babe Ruth trade. i got to see it happen over – and I hope I get to see it – over the next 10 years. If he shows me over the next 10 years that he's that kind of, of a player, then I'll buy it. But right now, it's all – Perception. Do you think he's going to be that good? Your final league scouts think he's going to be that good. Your managers think. The writers and broadcasters think he's going to be that good. Well, I'm a guy that says I'm going to wait and see. 
That's why, like, I I use the comp that they made to to illustrate how big a deal people perceive it to be. Um, I wouldn't make that comparison for the reasons that you just gave. We we had the ability to look at what Ruth's entire career was, right? Um, and you know, they changed his position. He be, he was a left-handed hitting uh, pitcher. Beforehand, they make him an outfielder. They rebuild the stadium. Yeah, he goes on to be like probably one of the, if not the greatest baseball player ever. We don't know that about Juan Soto. I think, you know, but it is an unprecedented thing. We we really have never seen a player with his comparables, with his numbers, move at this point in his career. And that's I think. Ted Williams. Ted Williams. Well. Yeah, he's got Ted Williams-esque numbers, but again, Ted played his whole entire career in Boston, uh, other than the times that he left for war, but he's got those sorts of numbers, and we just don't see those types of players move at the trade deadline in Major League Baseball at this age, right? You know, most Ruben of the Amaro guys... Jr., Mike, excuse me, Ruben Amaro Jr. said he would trade a whole team for Soto. Well, his, track, mean, he, his track of record went too good with the Phillies roster. No, no, but he—he, he, uh, you know what I mean. He's being—he's just making a statement. I personally thought that he was going to go to the Cardinals because the Cardinals have so much talent that they can just take another, almost put a team together and put it on the field for the Nationals. In, I think they felt that the players that they got back from the Padres have higher ceilings than mm-hmm. what was on offer from the, uh, from the Cardinals, number one. Number two, the Padres were all willing to make this deal, throw in two, younger, two young major leaguers, three uh, pros- highly rated prospects, and an established player in Luke Voigt for uh, for Soto and Josh Bell, right? And so the overall package that came back, you know, the 1, 3, and 14 prospects in the Padres system, and both uh, Hassel and Wood are ranked in the top 100 prospects. Um, and Mackenzie Gore, who's struggled a little bit since he got to the major leagues, was considered up until he made his debut this season to be the top pitching pros- young p- pitching prospect. C.J. Abrams is a highly rated um, shortstop. It gave the Washington Nationals the best type of deal that they wanted. And so, you know, once the Padres, I, I think James Wood was the key to the deal. Once the Padres became willing to offer him up, you saw the deal come together pretty quickly other than the whole entire thing with Eric Hosmer refusing to uh, you know, invoking his no trade clause and them having to send Luke Voigt over. But the deal came together pretty quickly. Uh, but the Nats are going to be that team now that traded away Juan Soto the year after they traded away Trey Turner, the year after they let Anthony Rendon uh, walk away, the year after they let Bryce Harper uh, walk away in free agency. So they've had, you know, three, four really good homegrown talents in 
Harper, uh, Rendon, uh, and uh, Trey Turner and Soto that have come through the organization, and none of them have stuck around. And Roger, we'll question, let you get the last question in before we go to Doug. Roger, there. No, I'm here. It was the. Uh, I'm. I'm trying to think of uh, what was the Phillies player that they got, and it was nine for one or five for one. Uh, it was a right fielder. He wore number nine. And I re- I remember that was like a big deal at the time when the Phillies made that deal. But, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I think that uh, he was a right fielder for the Phillies. But I think that the, I think the Nationals, uh, you know, we'll know, Mike, we'll know next year and the year after whether it was a really good deal for them. Well, I think it'll take a little longer than that. Although, Are you, there, you know, Mike? right now the the offensive the offensive components of the Padres are probably the best in the National League right now, better than the Dodgers, better than anybody. Whether they're going to have enough pitching, they've tried now for three or four years to spend a lot of money, and haven't been able to challenge the Dodgers yet. And even the Giants last year jumped in front of them. So we'll wait and see. I, I hope we'll it's wait a successful. And see. I agree. Yeah, I hope but it's I as think, successful think... as they say. And well, uh, I I'll tell too. you, uh, one thing I'm disappointed in, we, we got into the baseball so thoroughly there that, uh, uh, Mike, we didn't get a chance to talk that uh, how happy they are in London and how Kelly brought the championship to London. They haven't had it for, what, what 20 years? And we didn't get a chance to talk soccer. But we'll do that next week. Let's go to, let's go to Doug right there? now. Doug, help. Pardon me? Oh, we lost Mike. We lost Mike? Okay. I was hoping Mike was still there. Doug, only thing I can say to you is I know you were very, very skeptical about some of the players that the Orioles may trade, and they wound up trading some of them. And I think you've got to be a little disappointed down at Baltimore right now about what happened. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think Trey Mancini was all but gone, um, and I understand the business behind you know, him not being a part of the rebuild and – you know, they got, I would say, two decent players in return. Um, you know, trading Jorge Lopez, I think, was a little disappointing to me. Um, you know, not only was he a, an all-star and a, a proven, at least first-year closer who, who had 19 saves and secured the back end of their bullpen, which is a really good one, um, you know, and changes some of the roles and dynamics of, of what's left. But I felt like they got four guys in return that none of them I mean, I don't know, maybe one of them becomes something, but um, I don't think what they got was 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 the right return, let's say, um, as you start looking at, you know, at some of the other players that got traded and what got returned for them. So, yeah, I mean, a little disappointing, but at the same time, I mean, they've won three straight now. I think they're, they're playing good, hard baseball. Um, I think what could make this better is, you know, calling up a couple of their young – guys in triple a i know they've got you know about a handful to pick from but what bothers me is you know everybody talks about how the orioles have one of the best farm systems maybe the best farm system but i don't know i'm skeptical um they certainly don't have a lot of pitching um in their minor leagues that you look forward to next year when they continue to hopefully turn the corner and and what does their rotation look like next year that's any different than this year 
provided that John Means comes back healthy and maybe Grayson Rodriguez comes back as a healthy component. I mean, their next best pitching prospect is D.L. Hall, who in AAA is like two and six, and he's getting lit up like a Christmas tree. So I don't know what they think they have in terms of pitching, but they're going to – they're going to have to spend some money if they want to get some pitching to be relevant and, and take the next step forward. That's all I can say. Roger? Well, you know, it's interesting, um, Doug. The uh, The Phillies made uh, pretty good – three pretty good deals. The only one they gave up was Ohapi. Uh, the, uh I mean, that you really know about because uh, they feel <clears> – <throat> excuse me, a lot of people feel he is going to come back to uh, haunt them. Just like uh, travel, Travis uh, Darnot, you know, with the Braves. I mean, right. that's a whole other story. But the uh, but the, they held on to their uh, pitching, and they have like one guy that they expect to be in the rotation possibly next year. So, and I think right. what's interesting is, you know, you talk about Triple A, uh, and then I read that uh, David Dombrowski. Dombrowski uh, he he feels uh, better or is, feels very good, comfortable uh, bringing guys from Double A, and I've heard and Don, yeah. you know this more than anybody, that uh, p- people think that Double A is more of a barometer uh, on uh, yeah. players than it is at Triple A because you have a lot of guys playing Triple A that are castoffs. For, uh, for you know, played and 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 did not play in the major leagues for a number of years. So what do the um, Orioles have in Double A, Doug? Well, to your to your point, Roger, I think that you know the the Orioles have over the years, in the last five years, been able to, in their opinion, build a lot of depth across their entire minor league system from. You know, short A to long A to double A to triple A, and I mean they have they have two guys at triple A that that are kind of your your shortstop, second base, maybe third base prospects in Jordan Westberg and and Gunnar Henderson, who are both hitting very well, somewhere around 250, 300, 16 home runs, 60 RBI kind of guys. They just took Jackson Holiday number one overall, who's a shortstop, and they have multiple players play the same position so in in many cases you're right some of your best prospects exist in double a but if you have depth across the board at certain positions you're going to have to move them through your system and the orioles have done that progressively as they've gone from a to a to double to triple a so you know they're playing this waiting game and they've had five years to to produce players and, and work them through their systems so that they can take the next step um you know, and I don't, I don't doubt any of that from a position player standpoint because they have a lot of really good position players, you know, strewn across their whole entire minor league system. I mean, they have, you know, Heston Kerstad, uh, Colton Kowser, uh, Kyle Stowers. Um, I mean, they have a plethora of outfielders that I think are, are anywhere in their minor league system. My point was they don't have a lot of pitching to show for, you know, the next year, two, three years, and – the only way they're going to get that accomplished is to spend some money, and I remain hesitant because they haven't done that. Um, and the only they're, way they're, they're going to win is to get more pitching, Doug. You, got, you can't win without pitching. You know, Don, they haven't had a 20-game winner since Mike Boddicker in, like, what, 82, 83? I mean, it's, I, mean I don't know if that's the exact measure and barometer and standard of what a good pitcher is, but, you know, it certainly has been for some time. 
Well, I mean, look. I mean, when's the last time they've had a guy who even hardly had double-digit wins? I mean, I think John Means was our only uh, Major League All-Star a couple years, two or three years ago, and I think he had 12 wins or something like that. I mean, so it's it's pretty pathetic across the board when it comes to the pitching staff that's, that's been, you know, thrown out there. And had it, had it not been for the back end of their bullpen, you know, and they've thrown a lot of innings. You know, when you got guys that are only going out there throwing four and five innings, you're going to tax your bullpen night in and night out. And, you know, like I said, I mean, be, being a major league closer isn't as easy as one, two, three in the ninth inning. Those are three of some of the toughest outs you're going to get. And everybody kept saying, oh, well, Jorge Lopez wasn't very good last year. Well, last year, Jorge Lopez was a starter. They, they converted him to a closer, and he fell nicely into that role, converting 19 of 23 saves before he got traded. So now they got to turn to somebody else who has to go out there and get three outs. And you saw Felix Bautista come in today, who throws 100 miles an hour, right? He got the last three outs and secured the win, but he also gave up a home run. So I don't know if he's, you know, a, a better suited piece for the seventh or eighth inning, um, and they're going to have to find somebody else. And I think that the role of closures, closer is very diminished in the major leagues where it, these guys are saying, is. oh, well, anybody can be your closer. We can take a converted starter and make him a closer. Well, I don't know who that guy's going to be. Well, they Probably. did it with the Braves. Did it with Schmoltz, and uh, yeah. then he went back to starting, and you know, and was uh, great both ways. So, a Hall of Famer, right? Yep. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Dennis Eckersley. I mean, there's there's plenty of people that have done it. I'm just saying, I don't know who that guy is, and if we're going to continually, you know, take steps uh, for the future, you know, a lot of their players. You know, their core group is pretty good in terms of what they have with Mountcastle, with Mullins, with Hayes. Um, you know, but you look at their major league team, and I mean, I don't think Rugnet Odor is going to be a part of that squad next year. And certainly it's just my opinion, but I don't think Tyler Nevin's ready for the major leagues. Um, I don't think Ryan McKenna, um, although both of those guys hit a home run today, I get it. But, I, I mean, Ryan McKenna is no better than a fourth outfielder that's a pinch runner that's a defensive replacement. So I, I don't think he's your guy. Um, you know, Robinson Chirinos is 37. I mean, you know, are they going to bring him back? And who do they have behind him? Who plays first base if Ryan Mountcastle can't play? You know, there's a, to me, there's a lot of question marks in terms of, of where they're headed. So I, I do believe they're going to have to get the checkbook out to make this a better a better 20. Well, you know the minor league system better than I do, but every time they uh... – as you follow baseball closely, any time you look at the uh, the stats across the board, they talk about the Yankees' farm system. They talk about the Cardinals' farm system. They talk about the Dodger farm system. Well, they have eight or nine guys ready to come right up. The Cardinals, everybody thought that maybe, in fact, even Roger said it, and I think correctly so, many people thought the Cardinals were going to be the team that got soda because they have so many minor league players and a combination that they could put together. Uh, I think they were a little surprised that the Padres had that kind of, you know, had that kind of support at the minor league level that they could make that right. move. But so I, but I don't know enough about the Baltimore farm system to know where they stack up in terms of other teams in the American League East. Um, I mean, I think if you look at, if you look at whatever, I mean, I don't know who ranks the minor league systems. I mean, whether it's Baseball America or you know, whoever it is. But I would I would probably be willing to bet that Baltimore is securely in the top five for best farm systems. But 
you know, we know that a prospect is a prospect until he steps up to the major league and produces. So, correct. you know, if you're going to be a, a first overall pick like Adley Rutschman, who, you know, already in a short season has more than 20 doubles and, and has averages climbed all the way up to 250, nearly 260. So, I mean, you know, I, <laughs> that guy was worthy of the first overall pick. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, you look at Jackson Holiday. I mean, he's he's still a high school kid. How many years is it going to take for him to make an impact? We talking three, four, five years? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you're talking minimum about, of three, I'd say. Minimum three. Right. I mean, during those other lean years that we've lost a hundred games and, and didn't get the first overall pick, they picked Colby Cowser, they picked Heston Kerstad, both outfielders, and you know they're they're situated in single A and I think double A respectively. So they're what another two years away. Um, well, that's if they continue well, to, to develop and produce. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not Michael Elias. I don't see what he sees. I don't have the information he has analytically that suggests that. I mean, you know, they they trade Trey Mancini. They they call up Yusnel Diaz, who was a, a piece in the the Manny Machado trade. And you know, back to that conversation. I don't think what we got what we should have gotten from Manny Machado. Manny Machado was arguably as good as a Juan Soto-type person when he got traded. and no, he's we got still a bunch the top third baseman of baseball. Yeah. And we got a bunch of nothing for him. We got we got uh, Yusnel Diaz, who they just called up, who was hitting less than 200 in AAA. Um, they got Dean Kramer, who uh, he looked okay there for a while, but, I mean, he's come back to earth. Is he going to be your fourth or fifth starter? Yeah, maybe. Um, but they didn't get an impact player back. For, for, for what they traded, um, unfortunately. And I feel the same way about Lopez and and probably Mancini. So, you know, I don't know. Well, as you guys mentioned previously, the, the future will tell us what, what that barometer is. Well, you know, Doug, the Phillies' uh, first three picks in recent years have been flops. And uh, they right. just got rid of, uh, to the Angels, Mickey Moniak, who was not only their yep. first pick, he was the first pick taken in the whole draft and right. and has not lived up to any of the potential. And that's why more and more I, you, you see that uh, I think what I see are teams that are going after college players where they feel right. more secure than a kid coming out of high school. And I agree. Well, that's, I mean, yes, but I also believe that that's, it depends on how how accelerated your plan is for what you're building. So for the Orioles to take the number one overall pick this year as a high school player in Jackson Holiday, they had that luxury because they already have three or four shortstops ahead of him that are going to get to the major leagues before he will. And who's to say that Jackson Holiday remains a shortstop for the future? Could he be a third baseman? Could he, you know, relocate to a different position? I mean, we don't know any of that information as they start to play baseball at that minor league level. So, you know, if you're a team that's, you know, more interested in, in, in winning a little sooner, maybe you take a college bat. And what you saw from the Orioles after they took Holiday, yeah, they took uh, they took a third baseman from Clemson. They took an outfielder from, I think it was Cal. They took um, a guy from Florida that was that was a college guy. So, you know, I, I think that they're playing the juxtapose between different positions they feel like they need to accelerate faster than others in terms of the college aspect versus high school. Again, my my situation is most of the arms they took weren't until, you know, nearly the 10th or, or after rounds where 
I mean, you know, <laughs> what what is that going to be? I mean, how are they going to develop? So, you know, it's a it's a jigsaw puzzle that you have to put together if you're one of those guys that suggests you know what your farm system is, you know how to you know properly stack those cupboards, and then guess what? Like I said, on the backside of that, you're going to have to spend some money in free agency to make some of that work. Um, if you don't have the arms, how can you well, win? Yes, so that, that's, it's a blend. It's it's a blend. There's yeah. no doubt about it. You can't live right. by the free agent market, and you can't live by uh, the farm system unless right. you're really good. The Cardinals seem to be able to do that, but they made the big deal right. to get Coachman a couple of years or last uh, they, year they before. Been, Roger, they've been consistent. They, you know, they may not win, but they've been consistent. They're right there year after year after year. Oh, they are. They're, I agree with their you, system, Absolutely. Their general managers, their scouts, everybody associated with the Cardinals uh, knows their right. responsibility and handles it very, very well. One thing we didn't say at the top of the show, I always do, uh, Doug Hamilton, who's on with us right now, a PGA professional down in Baltimore, and uh, he joins us each and every week. And uh, we talk so much baseball and football now. We don't get a chance to even touch on your on your profession. Yeah, well, which how about Tiger getting offered two hundred million now to go down and uh, <laughs> play golf with Liv? Well, I would say first and foremost, you know, I, I do watch a lot of sports and I take a lot of pride in the knowledge base of you know many sports. And I and I would say, you know, I don't typically listen to the beginning portions of the show, but I also know, Don, that your your background, you know, in, in basketball and hockey and, and all the sports, baseball, you know, your your knowledge base, I appreciate each and every week listening to you, you know, chime in and ask the questions you do from a preparation standpoint with regard to the many sports that you cover. So, I mean, that's not an easy thing to, to be that, you know, widely spread across. Uh, but I, That's but I why he's in the Hall of Fame, Doug. You know, I, it makes sense to me, uh, for sure. Um, so, I try to kind of exemplify some of those same things as I pay attention to, you know, many of the sports. You know, I do like horse racing. My wife's a huge hockey fan that I've started to watch. Obviously, baseball, football, golf. Um, you know, certainly I don't know what, what uh, uh, you know, the boxing aspect or the soccer aspect. But, but to your question. Don't forget I, I the Ravens. you got to stay with the Ravens. Yeah, I heard Tiger turn down seven hundred million. I don't know what the exact seven was. was it seven? I thought it was eight. I don't know. Eight hundred I mean, million. One, but oh my god! That going? Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that's a lot of money there. Um, but yeah, I mean he's well. They they played the Trumps. Policy. They played the Trumps uh, golf course over the weekend here in Jersey. Uh, yeah, I would say from a standpoint of uh, fans, it was not too successful. Uh, they did not have a great fan turnout for the for the event. Where was that? Well, I don't think any of them. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we talked about this. I mean, there's there's no TV coverage. You, if you want to watch it on YouTube, it, it's going to be a, a a grainy representation of you know of golf. There's there's no. Yeah, I mean, it's whatever. I mean, they're they're doing all that for money. And now you saw, I think, that Phil Mickelson was leading. Um, a group of what ten, twelve PGAers that was, you know, filing an injunction against the PGA for for banning them or, or whatever. So I mean, this right, this is going to be rhetoric that we're going to play as a broken record for continuous weeks until someone gets into a courtroom and says this is the answer. Um, so I, I mean, I don't know. Honestly, I don't really follow it that much, and 
you know, we've talked about, you know, the many aspects of golf, and, and I, I love the international competitions with Ryder Cup and, and President's Cup, more so Ryder Cup, but I typically watch most of the majors, and, you know, I mean, golf finds its way onto the TV into the golf shop because I know a lot of the members like to watch it and, you know, whatever. We watch the DP, the European. We watch, you know, all the different styles of golf. That, that come about that are available on TV, but but how about Henry Simpson? I, I mean, he said it was the it was the uh, focal point of his life was to be on the Davis Cup or the Ryder Cup and be captain. He, they make him right. the captain, and and within a week, within five days, he, he, they have to fire him because he jumps to the other. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, they, yeah, you know what you'll sell for money. I guess they renamed the captain as Luke Donald, which. You know, whatever. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I follow it, yet I really don't. I mean, obviously at the country club level, I'm, you know, pretty busy in my own right with regard to what's happening on a, a perpetual daily basis and looking forward to, you know, the different things that come about on our schedule. I mean, I've got another month of, of grind, if you will. Our, our Labor Day is kind of the biggest tournament we run. And, um, you know, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've had about, three and a half months worth of one day off per week that's starting to kind of wear on me a little bit. So in my spare time, I'm not necessarily watching golf as much as, as I do probably baseball. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you what, I am totally enthralled in watching the Orioles play baseball for the first time in five years. I watch every game. I follow their statistics. And I mean, it's just been a revelation to see them, you know, play as well as they have and have that level of excitement and the vibe that you feel from watching them. Um, you know, and obviously we're, we're into training camp with the Ravens and, you know, coming off a down-type season uh, as a Baltimore fan, I'm really excited about some of the, the things that they've done in the off season and look forward to, um, you know, watching them play football on Sunday. So there's a lot going on here in Baltimore that's, that's good for a change. Roger? Well, I'll tell you, Doug, uh, if I get a chance, I think what I'm going to do is uh, buy an Orioles cap with the bird, the head of the bird yeah. on it. I used to have one with the, the old one, you know, with the full bird. But I like yeah. the uh, the bird head. I wanted to tell you, I mentioned you today uh, when I was at a bagel shop. Matter of fact, I, that's, uh, I, uh, I was getting a sandwich to have for, for dinner because I was working late. And um, he's the golf pro at Laurel Springs, which is a, uh, okay. a club in this area. And uh, you yeah. know, you may have met him at a, a, tour, a uh, you know a meeting, a PGA meeting, or a convention, or something. Sure. And his parents have Possibly. this uh, bagel shop. They're from the from North Jersey originally, but they've been down here many okay. years. But but right. I just I think the uh, I I'm glad that the Orioles have really turned it around. I really am because yeah, you know absolutely. they were getting. Oh, getting a lot of criticism, and uh, Angelos yeah. was uh, getting a lot of heat and everything. And when you look back at at the uh, the days of you know when Earl Weaver was there and uh, uh, Buck Showalter, I thought he was a great manager there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's it's not it's not an easy thing to to basically strip your your roster down to the studs and start all over and and tour you know, the, the and, and, and ridicule and, and, you know, no butts in the seats, you know, in terms of your fans. And, you know, that's to your point of, of coming on the show. I mean, the, the Washington Nationals 
are not a good baseball team right now, and they just got worse, like inherently worse. You know, and I think if you look at their minor league system, they're in the same spot that the Orioles were five years ago. They're they're not good, and they don't have a lot in the cupboard. So, right. unfortunately, if you're a Nats fan, you're going to go through another three, four years of some pretty significant losses, uh, being potentially the worst team in baseball for a couple of years to come. And, you know, I don't even think that the Nationals franchise is really that good of a franchise, as Mike noted in his piece. You've had four homegrown talents that were, you know, pretty stars that got away, and Max Scherzer. Um, don't let, let me interrupt you, you know, here. Any, anything in your area yeah. printed about that, how close are they to get this thing sold? Um, I mean, no, not really. I mean, it's no. I mean, you're you're hearing a lot of good things about Brandon Hyde and the Orioles and, and different things like that. I mean, I don't. Are you talking about the franchise itself, or? Yeah, yeah, the Washington franchise itself. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I mean, I, I get most of the coverage I get is that kind of Washington coverage, but, you know, the Juan Soto trade has dominated that for the past couple weeks. Um, there hasn't right. been much discussion about um, you know, any of the financial stuff. I'm just saying, like, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty that surrounds that entire franchise. Um, and, and that's not even being whispered right now. And I think what they're talking about is their inability to win baseball games first and foremost, not not the longer-term scenario, which I think is probably worse than, than them losing games anyway. So, yeah. Roger? Roger? I think if you're a, you're, if you're a Washington yeah. fan, I think you're looking forward to hockey season right now. Well, I, and I, I think with the uh, – I agree with you about the Nationals, but I do believe that uh, what they're doing is, or at least now on this uh, trade, they're trying to get some players so that they can at least, uh, you know, uh, yeah. uh, get get a, a competitive team uh, as the, uh, uh, the uh, minor leagues uh, starts to develop. But you're right. And like Don right. said, it's going to take at least three years to really get a minimum yeah. to get a, a guy uh, uh, to be able to be uh, ready to come to the major leagues. Yeah, it's it's not an easy thing. Um, you know, I'm sure I'm sure my dad would tell you the same thing because he well, nearly every Oriole game and has for the last I don't know how many years that you know it's you know we had the Mikel Francos and and those guys that the Nats you know have now that were the be a dedicated fan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, through thick and thin, but you know, they weren't major league players and they weren't weren't triple A players. They were somewhere in between, and you know, they represented the Orioles for the last several years, and that's unfortunate. But I think we've turned the Doug, corner. Now. Very, very much. Thanks to all our guests, Doug. Once again, thanks. We didn't get to the Ravens tonight. We'll get to them next week. Yeah. Frank, take yeah, controls. We're out of business. Okay. Have Thank a great you. week. God bless. Thanks for everybody coming on. Thanks, Doug, for. Uh, giving us your time. Ladies and gentlemen, this program is brought to you each and every night of the week in grateful appreciation to the men and women of the United States Armed Forces and women, men and women of police and fire services. You're out there and please, not everybody is as bad as the papers would make you make it seem. Please let them know that you know they're there and appreciate them. These programs are also dedicated to those who've lost their lives on line of duty. Everybody, Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman David Curtis, Joe and Jeffrey Colcap. Patrolman Jeffrey Yaslitz, 
Sergeant Thomas Bager, Detective Randy Childers, Detective Randy Bell, Ricky Bell, San Diego Officer Mike Henry, Sergeant Thomas Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, <clears throat> Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, Philadelphia Fire Department, Lieutenant Joyce Craig Lewis, Philadelphia Fire Department, Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department, Sergeant Charles Levy, Chris Levy, I'm sorry, uh, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department, Determined on Officer Chris from Lakeland PD, Lieutenant Joe Zerba, Newcastle County Police, Deputy Josh Myers, Nashville County County, Nashville County, Nassau County Sheriff's Department, Captain Matt Letourneau, Philadelphia Fire Department, Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Arthur Oak, Wilmington Fire Department, Lieutenant Jerry Ficus, Wilmington Fire Department, Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol, Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol, Chief Alpha, Little Longwood Key Police Department, Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department. My brothers and sisters, oh, you may be 10 7 at this point in time, and sometime will be 10 10 at the table of the Until that time, may the rose rise up to meet you. May the winds be always at your back. May the rain fall softly in your fields and the sunshine lightly on your face. Until we meet again, may the good Lord keep you and your families always in the hollow of his hands. Good night. God bless and have a great week.
County Business Dispatch, 1999. Call you and speak to eyes, 1999's response is last emergency. May God rest his soul. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. W Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.